Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. I'm Stacey Murray with Gateway Research Organization. We are a nonprofit applied research association based in Westlock, Alberta. Being fairly new to grow, this is, you know, a fairly new event for me, but we're very excited to be hosting another season of the Networking Nights with Steve Kenyon of Greener Pasture Ranching. This session is being recorded and will be shared as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can find it by searching for Wednesday Night Networking, Sustainable Agriculture, or Gateway Research Organization. This is the fourth season that Steve's been leading this Wednesday Night Networking, so be sure and check out the podcast and catch up on the past three seasons of Networking and Learning. Um, everyone is welcome to ask questions of our guest, Brendan Rocky, tonight, or to Steve. Just enter your questions in the chat. If you're having issues with your mic, I will be happy to read them out or just let me know you have a question. I will try and keep track and we'll take them in order as we go. Don't forget to hang out at the end of the session when we shut the recording off at 7.30 for the after networking networking. We stop recording. Everyone can turn on their mics and videos. Conversation should be free-flowing like a coffee after an in-person workshop. So with that, let's get underway. I'll turn it over to Steve to introduce himself and our guest and tonight's topic. Thank you, Stacey. Uh, yes, I'm Steve Kenyon. I'm with Greener Pastures Ranching. Uh, we have a custom grazing operation near uh, Busby, Alberta. And yeah, we've been doing this for, this is our fourth season doing this. Um, pretty exciting. We get a pretty good turnout every every time. Uh, it was way more popular than I thought it was going to be, but we started it when COVID was going and there was just the networking was missing. We were still doing, you know, we started doing online seminars and online conferences and, and it bothered me when the end of the seminar, uh, everything would just get turned off. There was no networking and the networking to me has been a majority of my education over the last 25 years, going to a conference and meeting people and, you know, talking to the speakers after or talking to other producers after. So we decided to start one up. That's just networking. Uh, there's no presentations here. So, um, and then we keep, keep it as a podcast after. So yeah, by all means, we've had some amazing speakers on here, uh, go to the podcast and, and, uh, look some of those up. They, we've had some really good, good uh, sessions on here and I'm really excited. Uh, Brendan Rock, He's one of my heroes. He's a uh, regenerative potato farmer. And the first time I ever got to see Brendan Rocky, I think I maybe told him this story already, but uh, I was going down to Montana and they, they sent me this agenda. And here's Steve Kenyon, regenerative grazing and Brendan Rocky, potato farmer. I'm like, what? How is that going to mesh, right? This potato farmer is going to, he's tillage, he's chemicals. He's going to be totally opposite what I'm going to talk about. And I will admit it was probably the best presentation that I've seen in 15 plus years. Um, it was an amazing talk. Uh, he's truly a regenerative farmer and uh, he's an inspiration to other grain farmers. Like if Brendan Rocky can do this with potatoes, um, grain farmers all over the place better be able to do some regenerative management because um, yeah, Brendan is a uh, pioneer in this regenerative cropping thing. So I'm very excited to have him on here. I talk about him way too much. <laughs> In seminars, when everybody talks about anything with grain, I, I just use him as an example all the time. So, um, yeah, he's an amazing uh, producer, and we're glad to have him on the team. So, uh, Brendan, I'll turn it over to you. Just a quick introduction, and tell us what you want to talk about tonight. And that's what we'll we'll start with, but we don't have to stay there. Uh, the Q&A will take us wherever they want to lead us. 
Yeah, no, that sounds good. I, I remember very vividly meeting you in Montana and listening to your presentation. It's the closest I've ever heard another presentation as far as being similar to mine. But I think that was really good because our fundamentals were identical but the application could not be more different. So it really emphasized to me just if we were focused on the same fundamentals and we're seeing the same successes. So yeah, I, I do get, I do, being the potato farmer, I always kind of stand out at some of these conferences. I've spoke at a no-till conference, which was really interesting. Went in there expecting a little bit of a, some people kind of picking me on me a little bit, but once they hear the fundamentals I'm talking about, then it's harder to get mad at me. Um, I do have some tillage involved with my operation. The thing I really point out as far as, you know, a counter to being the no-till operation is the key for me is building soil structure. So when I am out there harvesting the crop, I am going to have some soil disturbance. But if I have a stable soil structure, that soil disturbance doesn't destroy that aggregate stability and doesn't set me back. So many people think if you go through with a potato harvester and have that massive soil disturbance, you're going to set yourself back to zero. And that's just not true at all. So for me, a big emphasis on my farm is definitely carbon, 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 carbon. Every single time we have a problem, it's always going to come back to carbon. Um, I did have trouble with the potato variety this year. We had an extremely cold and wet spring and I had a variety that turns out is really susceptible to uh, black leg, which is a bacterial disease. And I've really been thinking about this variety a lot in its relationship to carbon. And the reason everybody likes this variety is because it yields well. Well, if it yields well, that means all the work it's doing as far as removing carbon from the atmosphere is going towards making a crop. So all the energy is going there. So what that means is where that carbon isn't going is into the soil and into the rhizosphere and protecting that crop. So whenever you have any kind of issue at all, everything, the system collapses and that's where we have these big issues. So uh, do you want me to talk a little bit more about some of the practices I use just to give everybody a general idea, then we can kind of yeah, kind of give Diverse a quick overview of what you're doing. I mean, you're 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 doing cover crops and you're grazing and give us a, a you know a quick scenario of what your your season looks like and how you're managing it. Sure. So plant diversity plays a really big role on my farm. So another similarity to what Steve speaks about. Um, so I have four center pivots. So I'm roughly 500 acres under irrigation. I'm on a two-year rotation. And that's pretty standard for our area. Just most other guys are doing a potato grain rotation. Maybe some other guys are doing potato and cover crops. So I'm rotating potatoes and cover crops. So half my acres each year are going to be potatoes. Whatever's not potatoes is going into a cover crop. On that cover crop, it's a diverse mix. I think I'm around 16 species that goes into this diverse mix. Um, water conservation is a huge priority with doing the cover crop as opposed to an alternative cash crop. So I grow the crop up. Once we get enough biomass out there, I work with a rancher. He has cattle and sheep. Um, the, Depending on how I have my circle split up, we like to bring the cattle out on the full circles because we'll put an electric fence all the way around the field and we will manage the cattle around the field in pie-shaped paddocks. So we do have management. Um, we do this in order to just have consistent grazing across the field, which really helps with weed management and reducing compaction. And we that we'll have nighty head out there for about two months. On the other fields that are split in half, he brings sheep out 
Um, the reason we bring them out on the half circles is I'm still irrigating and harvesting the other half of the field and just managing that sprinkler can be problematic when you have um, electric fence up. So by bringing the sheep out, there's a sheep herder that comes out with him and he manages the sheep without having to mess with any electric fence. He'll corral them at night during the day he's grazing. And then as soon as we're done with potato harvest on a section of the field, they go over there and clean up the cold potatoes. So another bonus, and that's actually leading to some helping us with some even further uh, disease management. So that's on the rotational year. After the cattle are done and sheep are done grazing out there, we spread compost out there. And that's going to be the foundation for of our fertility for the potato crop the next year. We do some field work to incorporate that, loosen up the soil so we're ready to make potato rows the next spring. So we'll go out there the next spring. Fertility is already established, um, row out. When I plant my potatoes, I plant a companion crop directly with the potatoes in the hill. So I'm planting a five species mix. I've got two different species of field peas, chickling vetch, chickpeas, faba beans, and buckwheat directly in with the potatoes. Um, Several reasons for doing this. Uh, obviously a lot of them are legumes. So I have nitrogen fixation during the cash crop. I'm really greedy like that. I started off with legumes in the cover in the rotational crop. I thought, why not do that every single year? Um, and then I have buckwheat out there, which is really good for mobilizing phosphorus in the soil, which is really important, especially in our soils. We're very calcareous. The phosphorus does a lot for mobilizing, uh, phosphorus in the soil and then all of these are great for managing helping manage aphid in my field Um, a lot of people ask about colorado potato beetle not a threat here they've never established in our area we're high altitude the cold winters whatever the reasons are we don't have colorado potato beetle here the number one pest i deal with are aphid and the reason they're so problematic for me is they don't do a lot of physical damage to the potato crop, but what they do do, and especially with me growing certified seed, I have to meet certain disease tolerances and viruses are a big part of that. And the aphid, when they feed off of potatoes, if they feed on a a potato that has a virus, they can spread that to other potatoes. And so the only way for me to manage the spread of these potato viruses is to manage the vector. So I do that with high amounts of beneficial insects. So I have a lot of flowering plants out in my potato field. So within the companion crop, I've got a lot of flowering plants, the buckwheat, the faba beans, they're all great for beneficials. And then beyond that, I put a buffer strip all the way around my field and a few other strips throughout, which no potatoes at all, but it's just a highly diverse mix of flowering plants for really emphasizing beneficial insects. Um, the other thing that's really nice by having the plant diversity out there is the aphid actually prefer feeding off of the companion crops. So if you give them an alternative, if they're going to, if I'm going to have aphid in my field, if they're on the companion crops like the faba beans instead of the potatoes, that is also helping prevent the spread of virus in my field. So I'm the only certified seed grower in this area, probably in the country that's managing PBY successfully in their fields without using any insecticides at all. It's strictly through uh, beneficial insects. And then, so we grow up the crop like that. protect from the aphid, and then at harvest time, we end up with just a high quality crop. So what I've been able to do through the years is I've been, by taking care of this, investing in the soil, I've greatly reduced my cost of production. I've been able to maintain my yields because higher 
yields weren't necessarily a goal because growing certified seed, I have a certain size profile I'm going to. So growing bigger potatoes wasn't necessarily beneficial. So, but if I can maintain my yield while reducing my cost of production and improving the quality of my crop, that's really what I'm after. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. That's what we're doing. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. I remember you saying in your, your conference uh, seminar that you're a biotic farmer, right? You're looking yes. for a biotic solution to a, uh, a symptom, right? If some, you know, pest or a disease comes up, you're always trying to look for a biotic solution instead of an, you know, antibiotic solution. Yeah. So once again, similarities with you, just, I've just come to the conclusion the way to manage problems, I think where we ran into trouble in agriculture is we all thought whenever you have a problem that's alive, the solution was to kill it, you know, with sides, herbicide, insecticide, fungicide. But what I'm finding and those were just ways of avoiding the problems. And the only way to truly manage the problem is to bring more life into the system. So every single time I've brought more life into the system, more problems have disappeared. So more living plants, more animals, these all lead to higher life in the soil, more bacteria, more fungi. Anytime I promote life, everything works better. So that's a very just over overlapping uh, philosophy for the farm. There you go. That's why I fell in love with the guy right there bring in life, more biodiversity. That's important in any system. So, um, so we were going to talk about some carbon today, Brendan. Um, to me, carbon is one of the most important parts of what we're doing. Um, we get more carbon in the soil, we get more water holding capacity. You get more carbon in the soil, you get more nitrogen, right? Then the carbon to nitrogen ratio balances out. You, In our agricultural, what I've seen is as people deplete their carbon out of their soil right they're harvesting it they're mining it they're tilling it or whatever we're losing carbon we're losing water holding capacity we got more water running off we're losing nitrogen storage ability right the carbon nitrogen ratio you lose nitrogen it, it starts with carbon and we get carbon through the plants through photosynthesis right that's how they pull it out of the air so um, i've got a bit of an issue right now the whole world's focused on this carbon emissions right reducing emissions and and they're missing half the equation Right. Half the equation is we need to increase carbon sequestration. So tell me how you're sequestering carbon on your ranch. What, what are your what are your tools to do that with? Yeah, well, and that's where you, you mentioned only talking about half of the conversation. And I think that's where something we really have to focus on. So I think so often when I'm in talking with potato farmers, every all the all the focus is on photosynthesis, right? The emphasis is always taking CO2 out of the atmosphere and adding it to the soil. But for me, the reason I put so much effort and energy into doing that and capturing, taking the CO2 and converting it into a different form is because I need to access that carbon at some other time. And so it's really, it's not so much about photosynthesis or carbon sequestration. It's really about carbon cycling. Because I think what's really interesting is, you know, we always talk about there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere, right? But when I pull a soil sample and send it off to a lab and they look at the overall soil health, the number one thing they're looking at is respiration rate. So you're telling me we have too much CO2 in the atmosphere, but you're going to tell me my soil is healthier the more CO2 I have returning from the soil back into the atmosphere. So it isn't about how much CO2 is coming back out of the atmosphere. We really need to have that rapid cycling. I want to bring a heavy amount of carbon in from CO2 to put it in another form, but that's because I'm going to access it as soon as you do, it gets returned. So I want that 
carbon coming in and out very rapidly. But what's nice is when the soils have been depleted, we have that reservoir, we can capture that, we can build up this reserve, but I wanna build up this reserve because I want to have access to it later on. So the number one way to do that, the only way to do that is through living plants. There is no other way to do that. It doesn't work with, you know, throwing compost out there has its benefits, but it's not building that that true carbon in your soil. It really has to be through those plants. So that's where plants and plant diversity play such a critical role on my farm. And so that's why even in our rotation, water is a really big concern for us. And I don't dare have a fallow year in that rotation because I, I completely stop that carbon cycling. I've got to invest a little bit of water into that carbon capturing in the off season so we can bank that. And then I've got access to it the next year when I'm growing that potato crop. You just uh, triggered something there for me. We get the comment up here about cover crops are, are uh, they steal water from the soil. Everybody's always concerned about cover crops are going to take all the water out of the soil. I think a lot of people are missing the fact that that's building building up your soil so you get more water holding capacity. Maybe the first year there it's it's going to sh- look like it's doing that, but I mean, once you start building up the biology and building up the carbon in the soil, it's going to hold more water. I mean, you're in a desert, but you have irrigation. So what's your take on that? Yeah, so I, the conversation a little bit different here. So I have a very sandy soil, so my water holding capacity is going to be low no matter what. And we are irrigated. So we have a little bit different view on that. So for me, it truly is a matter of I'm, in, I'm willing to invest that water because I have such a low water holding capacity. The only way to improve that is to bring more carbon into the soil. So by taking care of that carbon in, in, in banking on some of that, building my organic matter, it saves me a lot of water in, in the long long run. So one thing, when we were growing a potato barley rotation, I had to use a lot more water on my potato crop when that was, when we were on the potato year, but by getting away from the barley, the number one thing is, well, we're not growing a cash crop. So during that year, it's real easy to see the water savings. Instead of 22 inches of of irrigation, we're using six to seven inches to grow the cover crop. That one's real easy to see on paper. But then the next year, it was so amazing to me how much water we were saving because we improved the soil so much with the cover crop that I'm actually saving a ton of water the next season as well. So now we're looking at big picture. So instead of just getting locked on to that one year, you have to look at things more on a larger scale. And that's when you see the true savings over a longer period of time. I remember you, you talked about how much water you saved before you were doing like 25 inches in a season and you dropped down to how many once you, once you got this. Uh, Well, it's hard to say. So our water issues have changed here a little bit. So 20 years ago, we didn't have meters on our, on our wells. So it was kind of, kind of on the honor system. We had kind of guesses. And so I'd already done a lot to improve my soil by the time we put the meters on as far as being a part of the water subdistrict. So I don't have real solid data on how much we were using. But so all I can really compare it to is I know what other people are growing. Now, everybody hears what, how little water I'm using on my potatoes. I'm growing specialties. I'm growing certified seed. They've, those potato crops vary a little bit than somebody that's going for a large amount of russet potatoes. I've got a little bit shorter season, but I have numbers where I, I've been able to compare growing the exact same variety, you know, five miles away from here, almost identical soil types, but I'm saving probably three to five inches per acre just because of the improvements in my soil. And But so much of that just comes down to who... Who's going to be real honest with you and share some numbers with you and 
that, that, that those get kind of touchy. You know, water water is a big issue around here. Nobody really wants to uh, be accused of using water poorly, even though I, I can testify that that happens more times than not. Yeah, that makes sense. No, I just think that water holding capacity and, and you know, building that soil. Uh, I remember you showed a picture of your irrigation pivot stuck in the mud. And yeah, switch that system over how how more stable your soil becomes. Yeah, and that's one of the things that's easy to tell from the roads, you know, as far as sharing numbers on water, you know, who's going to be real honest with you, you never really know who's being forthright but when you drive by their fields and, and their sprinklers are, are buried three feet deep and are stuck because of a lack of soil structure that tells you the whole story right there and so the story on that is we had one field back when our, our soil was dysfunctional we would get it stuck every single year and we used to blame the soil type for that problem it was the same spot in this field that's how that field's always going to be but once we got started getting away from toxic inputs and synthetic fertilizers really started emphasizing carbon cycling those ruts over time slowly started to disappear we went went from that spot that used to get real deep two three foot deep ruts and we get that sprinkler stuck each year we would gain a little bit on it and got to the point where we were going flat across the ground then after that when you go out to my field now even at the end of the potato growing season the center pivot is climbing over the rows still so i'm only crushing that soil down a few inches in the neighbors i mean they might be down feet and so that shows you the value of that aggregate stability and soil structure this has a huge impact on the relationship with water i have a higher infiltration rate i have a better water holding capacity but having that that soil structure is so valuable as far as protecting the quality of the potatoes because when we are harvesting i don't have clods to deal with i'm not driving through those deep ruts which bring up huge clods you don't have all that trash banging up your potatoes and so we end up with a higher quality crop just because that soil is so loose we don't have the clods and everything comes out just beautiful and so that's where i'm talking about when you have that good strong soil structure it's actually harder to destroy than we really think we think it's so easy to destroy good soil structure with 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 tillage but the trouble is tillage gets such a bad name because tillage is devastating to poor soils and that's the trouble is so everything is well then you need to get rid of tillage no let's fix the soils so that tillage is less damaging because that's the thing with growing the potatoes i'm not going to get away from tillage the crop i am growing is down in the soil and i get emails every once in a while everybody thinks you can no-till potatoes i'm telling you that doesn't work on this kind of scale you you can cover up uh, up your garden potatoes with some straw and grow some potatoes on my scale if i did that i would be broke after one season guaranteed it would not work at this scale it would be devastating um, you would have a loss of yield. The quality would be diminished. It would be a very, very bad idea. I can't remember who said it, but uh, years ago I heard someone say, you don't have to be perfect, right? If you do one negative to your system, well, do three positives at the same time, right? I mean, yeah, it's one step forward and, you know, we don't want to do one step forward and two steps back. We want to do it the other way around. So, yes, still it can be damaging, but in the right situation, if you take care of it, we can you know, still take that two steps forward and only one back. Well, and you, you, you have the armchair quarterbacks all the time. I have people all the time tell me you will never see earthworms in a potato field. I can't dig a hill of potatoes without finding multiple earthworms. You know, it, it's just, it's simply not true. And it is, it's easy to look from the 
outside and say all these things that you can and can't do, but they are possible when you focus on those fundamentals and really put the health of the soil is the, is the primary focus. And there's a lot of different groups now looking for, you know, incentives. Some of these corporations and stuff are trying to, I think is a good PR move to make some different farming practices, specifically with potatoes and whatnot. And all these growers keep asking for incentives to make these changes. And the thing I keep trying to emphasize is the incentives are built in. You know, doing these practices improves everything about that system. It makes you more efficient, going to make you more profitable. And that's where we need to really focus on those fundamentals and make everybody realize that this is the correct system. And, and when, once you start doing this, everything starts working better. That makes you more efficient. That is the incentive. And so, I don't know, it, it, it gets a little frustrating. We do have a couple questions, Steve. Uh, first, Larry, if you'd like to unmute yourself and ask your question. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but using cover crops, have you recorded increase in organic matter? So, yeah, over the years, we, we have seen an increase in organic matter. Um, and so when I first tell you the numbers of where, like, where our organic matter is, you're going to be disappointed. So I've kind of peaked out at about 1.7, 1.8% organic matter. So compared to certain areas, that might sound like a horribly low number. But for grazing potatoes in a desert, in sandy soils, in an arid climate, I'm a, typically about triple of what most other potato production is in my area. So right across the road, I've had a conversation with our crop consultant as far as what the neighbor's organic matter is, and they're usually be somewhere between zero and 0.5. So if I'm 1.5, we can even be conservative and be generous on them. If they're 0.5 and I'm 1.5, I'm triple of what they are, and that has a huge that is a significant difference. So you just have to be careful when you start comparing yourself to somebody out that's completely in a different system. So yeah, for what I'm doing, I've seen that number increase and I've seen the benefits that come along with those higher numbers for sure. Is it because you grow potatoes or is it harder to add organic matter to uh, to sandy soil? Sandy soil, arid climate, um, short growing season. So I've, I've got, a, I've only got about 90 days to work with too. And so a lot of people wonder why I don't grow a cover crop before or after my potato crop. And the reason is I, sometimes I'm lucky to get the potato crop grown. You know, when we're planting potatoes, it's still very cool. I just don't have much of a window before or after to establish much of a cover crop. And the other issue with that is I'm, I also have limitations on the amount of water I have available. So I don't, even if I had the growing season, I don't have enough water to grow that cover crop before or after. So that's where I've seen, I feel like I'm seeing so much benefit by having the companion crops. Instead of having to choose between a cash crop and a cover crop, if you do the companion crops in the cash crop, I'm getting the benefits of cover crops during the cash crop growing season. And so a lot of people- Are you allotted water or are you growing out of well? We're out of a well, but we belong to a sub-district. So I have surface water rights, and that goes into recharge ponds. And based off of what my shares are, I get a credit based off of how much comes through the river. And that's how much water I'm allowed to use each year. So then we have meters on the wells, keep track of how much I pump. And if I pump more than what I put back through recharge, I have to pay the sub-district. And we're up to, again, up to $500 an acre foot. So it can get extremely pricey. And so that's where it depends where you are in the valley geographically as far as what your water rights are. That, that It gets real real touchy real fast. I noticed if you're, if you're close, to, close to where Coors grow, grows all their hops, there's not much water left, right? 
Well, no hops here, but a lot of malting barley is grown here. Marley, We're yeah. about five miles from the Coors Research Farm. Uh, we used to be a Coors barley grower too. Barley just doesn't pay enough to justify the use of that water right now. I don't think Coors is going to be here much longer. Um, they're losing a lot of ground each year, and just people just really can't justify the cost of that water to grow grow a, a barley crop. It's got to be a higher value crop if you're going to put that much water on it. I guess you call that cheap beer, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I hate to take up too much time, but you talk about compost. Elaborate on that because we compost for a living in Georgia. But tell me about your compost oh, a little bit. Yeah. So actually, my cousin has a compost yard. The, our biggest limitation on compost is we don't have a good source of manure. Um, historically, we've had a very high water table. So there's we don't have any established feedlots or anything very nearby. So he has to drive a good three hours away to a feedlot to bring manure in to compost. Um, he has plenty of access to a carbon material. He works with a sawmill, so he brings in sawdust. He uses a lot of this barley stubble left over from Coors. Some people thought hemp was a real good idea around here. Nobody made any money off of it. He ended up composting most of that, which was made really good compost, but the hemp never really worked out as far as a cash crop. So carbon's no problem. He's got an abundance of that, but we've got to go quite a ways to, to find the manure. It's, it's too cost prohibitive just to buy ammonia nitrate, which will work, but you're not too organic. Well, and it just, it, those synthetic fertilizers are extremely destructive to the soil too. And, and I use just a little bit, I use about 30 pounds of, of UN32 each year just to supplement, get everything off to an early start, but that's it. Whereas most potato guys are putting on 200 to 250 units of nitrogen. So, it, I mean, he, it just doesn't even care, but he, financially he, too. He can use ammonia nitrate and for his uh, nitrogen source so, to replace the manures. Oh, as far as in the compost? Yes, and as long as you got a nitrogen oh. source. Doesn't matter what it is, but it may be too cost prohibitive. Yeah, and he, he's got a good setup, and he, his his one son is here doing the composting. The other one's over there, closer to the feed yard, and they start to break it down before they haul it, so they're not yeah. hauling as much of the trash. So that makes it a lot more economic too. So I'm 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 paying fifty five dollars per ton spread. So it, it's high quality compost, and for the way he's doing it, it's very economic for me. So I mean, I'm I'm not going to complain. It, it's it's a great fit for our operation. Better than fertilizer. Thank you. Yeah, I'm gonna cut you off there, Larry. Um, Linda, do you want to ask your question just while we're on the topic of compost? Sure. Yeah, this is a great presentation, Brendan. Thank you. Thanks. I'm just wondering if you've tried any of the high fungal compost types or whether you're using a more typical type of compost. A lot of us use the Johnson Sioux high fungal stuff where seems like we get a lot more um, bang for our buck in terms of building aggregate stability in soils for the same yeah. amount of compost. And, and so there are some guys playing around with that a little bit. And I, I'm not sure potato production is the best fit for the high fungal. I think a lot of uh, resources go into making that high fungal compost. And with the soil disturbance, I am going to always kind of knock my fungal populations back down even with higher overall biological activity in my soils, I am still very much bacterially dominated. I do put some different inoculums on and I, I do as much as I can to promote the fungal, but I'm just never gonna have a higher, a high fungal population in, in my soils just being sandy and with that soil disturbance every other year. So I think in other areas, I think it definitely has some benefit. I've talked to some people about it. I'm not opposed to it. I'm just not sure. I think there's 
better places for me to spend my money. So I, I'm, like I said, I'm not opposed to it. I just don't know if my scenario is the absolute best fit for it. And then, you know, kind of along those lines, uh, part of the Johnson Sioux is to use to have worms in there and the vermicast is part of it. So is right. your compost, are, are there worms working in your compost too? Not in the compost, but my theory on that is, is as long as I have very high populations of earthworms in my soil, regardless of if I put the compost out on a field that has a high population of earthworms in the soil, am I not going to end up in the same place? So I'm letting the earthworms do the work to the compost after it's already applied in my soil. So if I, if you were in a soil that didn't have any of that earthworm activity, then I think you might have some benefit by putting it through that vermicompost process before spreading it. So that, that's kind of my philosophy on it. So we've played around with it and it just, it is more energy, more work. And for what I don't, I wasn't really seeing any gain from it on my operation because I think I was getting, you know, when you're looking at it on the long term, I think I'm still getting those benefits by having that, those earthworms in my soil. Yeah, I love that. It's a whole systems approach. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Uh, Nathan, do you want to unmute yourself and ask your question? Sure. Uh, thanks, Brennan. Um, yeah, when you plant that companion crop in with the potatoes, are you planting the whole field or is it just around the hills um, is the first question. And the second question is, are you, do you then harvest that in any way or do you till it in or what, what happens to the, you know, to the legumes and, and the other stuff you're planting with the potatoes? Yeah. You know what I've got, is there some way I don't, I'll probably mess this up. I'll kick myself out of the zoom or something. Maybe with Steven, when we're done with this, I'll send you a link I made a little YouTube video kind of showing some visuals of how the companion crops, I incorporate that with the potatoes. Um, I could send that to you later on, or actually, even if you just look up my name on YouTube, I've got a YouTube channel. You should be able to find it on there. Cool. And those visuals might really help you, but I'll kind of ex try to explain it right now. But so when I plant the potato, the potatoes getting planted about six inches deep. And so I've just got gandy boxes on my potato planter and it's trickling the companion crop seed or right along with the potatoes. And so those companion crop seeds are coming up from six inches deep. So the peas, faba beans, all of them, they come up from that depth, no problem. Nice sandy soil, it, it just doesn't phase them at all. And so the potatoes grow and the companion crops grow right along with them and they just really complement each other very well. You know, the potato grows up, the pea climbs right along with it, and they have these stalks out there. So as far as a, a seeding rate, I know I have a good seeding rate out there when the neighbors think I'm doing a bad job managing wheat. For, so from the road, that that's how you know you, you nailed it. So if you want some out there, if you overdid it, then you could start creating competition with the potatoes. But I've got a certain amount out there I've never thought – have seen anything that would lead me to think that was ever creating competition. They're actually collaborating and both plants look healthier by growing out there at the same time. Now I'm only planting 10 to 15 pounds of companion crop seed per acre with these potatoes. Mm -hmm. So it really doesn't make a very large crop that would be worth harvesting. So there's, I, I've just never seen any point to go out there and try to gather any of that seed. So when I harvest the potatoes, most of those plants have mature seed, the seed pods shatter, they get thrown on the ground. So what's great about that, I mentioned not having a window after my potato crop for a cover crop, but when I'm out there harvesting potatoes, the companion crops 
are actually getting incorporated. So if I get some rain during those first couple of weeks of potato harvest, they'll germinate and grow. So now I've got a free compa- or cover crop out there when I would normally have bare soil. It didn't cost me anything for seed. It didn't cost me any diesel or time or labor to plant it. So I just get the benefit of it. If they don't germinate then and the seed survives until the next year, guess what? I'm planting a cover crop out there anyways. So a lot of times in the spring, that stuff will come up early. We'll germinate it to prepare the soil for the cover crop. So I'm going to get the benefit of that at some point. So for me, I don't feel like I'm really losing anything by not harvesting that seed from those companion crops. Just let them be part of this big picture, the holistic system, right? Let it fall out there and it's going to give me benefit somewhere further down the road. Did that answer all your questions? Yeah. yeah. One, one other question I just thought of was, have you tried any kind of strip tillage or, or when you till, are you having to just till wall to wall? Strip tillage with potatoes. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about I've do... basically like sort of like a rototiller type patch and then, you know, pasture strips in between. So, okay. So you're talking about instead of having a field of potatoes and a field of cover crop integrating both yeah. into the same my biggest issue with that is water. Mm. So if I have a field of potatoes and a field of cover crop, say I'm putting 14, 15 inches of water on the potato crop, only six or seven inches on the cover of the companion crop, but the cover crop. If I had those two fields integrated together, I'm gonna water both fields to take care of the potato crop. Now I'm using 15 inches on both fields. So I, I totally, I, I love where you're going with that because I've had those thoughts too. If I had an abundance of water and water was not a limiting factor, I think there would be so much to gain from having a higher integration of the two crops together, but it's gonna come down to water every single time for me. Cool, thank you. So Brandon, I got something to add to that. We're talking about shoulder seasons, right? Um, Adding that cover crop in the fall or or in the springtime. Did you not uh, explain to that one conference we were at, how when you, you spray your potatoes, right? To, to dry them down still. Isn't there right. a couple of your companion crops that don't get killed by the spray and they're still growing, you know, there's a living root in the, in your soil in the fall. Yeah. So by having the companion crop, I've been able to improve the quality of my potatoes uh, in, depending on the season. When I have a potato crop growing in the soil, they're releasing root, root exudates. I have a high uh, population of uh, soil biology in that rhizosphere. Everything's protected. But I do terminate my crop with the spray. It actually simulates a frost and it, it kills the plants and it dries them down. And the trouble is, as soon as you do that, you cut off that flow of carbon down into the soil. So now you cut off the beneficial bacteria and fungi that were living on the potato root. You have a small window there for it gives an opportunity for disease to come in and attack that crop. If the soil moisture is just right, not a problem. The only time I run into issues is if I have a heavy rain event right after vine kill and we saturate that soil before the skin sets have set we're kind of vulnerable right then so by having the companion crops out there a lot of times the, the product i use for killing off the potato vines it doesn't it, they got a waxier leaf and it, it doesn't it doesn't kill them off so now i've got a living plant out there so if i do receive some moisture they actually help regulate that excess moisture when the potatoes are dead and we're trying to get a skin set so i feel like i see a, a total uh, improvement overall by having, well, it's just, it's another opportunity for more life out there 
when I would normally not have in a living plant. So anytime I can fill those holes with more life, I just keep seeing more and more and more benefit. And when I started doing the companion crops, that wasn't even one of the goals, right? I mean, really, when I started putting the first thing I started with with the companion crop were peas. My number one deal was that'll be cool to have nitrogen fixation going out there. That's all I was really thinking about. As I diversified even more, that's when I started thinking about the insect control. And then we killed a crop in one year. We had that rain event and I had all this green plant out there and the crop was still really good shape. So, but it just goes back to that fundamental. I added more life and it's amazing to me how often this happens where you keep seeing more and more benefit that you weren't even anticipating. And that's what's so cool about building these resilient dynamic systems that all it functions together when you're they're all working towards the same purpose and they're all have that same fundamental of life and diversity in life excellent thanks stacy we got another question yes we do from p logan question is basically what are you spraying the potato crop down with so i used to use sulfuric acid basically can't I don't have access to that anymore. I use a product called Reglone, which is a, a, a what is it, Diquat. I'm so bad with the chemistry names because that's the only product I use. But Reglone is the is the commercial name for it. And all it is is it's a foliar spray, and it really just simulates a frost in the plant. And so it's just a contact burn. And so with potatoes, the reason we do that is if you when the potato vines are green and you dig a potato like a new potato, the skins are really soft on them and they slough off. So I have to have that quick kill so the potatoes can start setting skins. And usually we wait four weeks after vine kill before we actually dig the potato crop. And we have to have good skin set, otherwise we will just absolutely destroy that crop and make it unmarketable. So that is the one that is the one chemical I use in a two-year rotation. And that is the only one. So I'm curious, Brennan. I want to come down there and start a regenerative grazing operation in a little piece and see if I can build your carbon. <laughs> I want sure. to bring and just do perennials because, um, right, some of our carbon has has uh, come up substantially over the years because we've got a clay soil, not a sandy soil, but we've raised ours from. Uh, I've got a study going right now with a bale, an old bale grazing field. We went from uh, on average three percent uh, soil organic matter. And we got it up to on average seven percent now. After that's after seventeen years, so it's really yeah. There was a guy. There was a yeah. There was one guy here in the valley several years back. He wasn't raising any potatoes, but he was working a lot with his livestock and had a lot of uh, perennials out there. Was really just didn't want to do any tillage at all out there, and he was able to track his organic matter. I, I believe he got somewhere between three and four percent. So that kind of shows you the potential of the organic matter in this area but even that so that was as high as i've ever seen it in an extreme system that doesn't involve potatoes but i you're not going to find anybody in this valley raising potatoes with an organic matter above two percent it's just just, we just don't have the environment or the soils to support that but i've also had a lot of people tell me that it's impossible to build organic matter with having potatoes in your rotation and i've been able to disprove that because I, I can show you how it compares to other potato operations. And I, I like I said before, I, you can you can still do it. Your rate of gain might be lower because I do have that offset when I do have that soil disturbance, but I'm still gaining. I'm still headed in the right direction. But the slope's just a little bit different. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. Karen, if you'd like to unmute and ask your question. I, I hope I'm not stirring the pot by asking this, but I put in the chat about a question about conversation I was having this week with somebody online about who is pretty convinced about regenerative egg 
was depleting this all, and I disagreed with him, but I just wanted wanted your guys' take on it and see what what you thought about about your thoughts on on that kind of question. I I feel like it's I was kind of hesitating to answer the ask the question because I felt like it was stirring the pot, but I think hey, it's it's relevant to this. <laughs> it's, it's it's relevant to this topic here, so it's it's you know, and it's you know, you're taking potatoes off, and it's you know, it's a valid question, but I'd love your your uh, comments on this. What, I, I'm not real sure. What exactly are you asking? So I'm just asking, like, how do you counter the the converse conventional egg argument of depleting the soil of nutrients? So when you're taking your potatoes off the, you know, you're you're taking nutrients from the soil, and the question is basically the argument that you know that you got to replace it some way and somehow, and and the conventional guys kind of think that you know if you're that in some way like the conventional thought is by fertilizer right um right then you're depleting the soil but they okay. don't really think about the biology they don't think about how cover crops are are helping to bring that back so i'm just wondering what what your thoughts are on that i, I think i see where you're coming from now so it, it, it i don't think it's exclusive to potatoes but anytime you harvest a crop you're going to be exporting nutrients so even in my system, and I've, I've had this conversation of a few people, they start heading down this path, right? They start building their soil and they see an increase even after harvest with their fertility. And they think, oh, I've built the soil up. I never need to fertilize again. And, and that's a scary trap to get set in because then you will start seeing depletions. So whenever I harvest a crop and export that nutrient, I'm going to have to replace that nutrient. But the difference is how I choose to replace it. So I'm not replacing it with synthetic fertilizers. I'm bringing it in with compost and I use a fish fertilizer, different things like that. So all of my fertility inputs are all to have carbon associated with them. So even compost would not exist without photosynthesis. But what I'm really doing by using compost is I'm outsourcing that photosynthesis. In order to have that carbon input, that means photosynthesis took place some other time or some other place. And it could be, you know, if you're in the case of the sawdust, that's photosynthesis that took place a long time ago. But that carbon was captured. Now I'm bringing that carbon, that photosynthesis that happened somewhere else, importing it, breaking it down through this compost and adding it to my soil, and I'm getting my fertility through that. But without photosynthesis somewhere, you're not going to be able to do that. So I'm still replacing that fertility that I'm exporting, but it's really the sources that I'm choosing is the biggest difference as far as when you're talking about the soil health. So does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the the answer that I was kind of looking for was that it was, you know, the, the sources that you're much different from conventional egg where you're kind of doing things in a way where you're feeding the biology. The biology is able to take that and feed the plants kind of deal. So that's, yeah. that's exactly So I'll, I'll give you some other scenarios here. It, it got real tricky for me. If you go through and look at the history of my soil samples, I pull my soil samples in the spring. So I pull a soil sample on every piece of my, my farm every single year. And usually let me make sure I get this right. So I, you know, so let's say I have this piece of land where I just did the cover crop. I had the cattle grazing. There's a manure out there. I just already applied my compost in the compost. I have some of this fish fertilizer mixed in there. My fertility is established. I'll pull this soil sample before the potato crop. I put very little on through the pivot during the growing season, grow this potato crop, harvest it, export all that nutrient. 
come back the next year with no further inputs, pull a soil sample again. And now I'm to the point where typically my nutrient levels are higher after that. That doesn't make much sense. But I think what's going on is you have to keep in mind what those soil samples are looking at. They're looking at fertility that's in an inorganic form. So before the potato crop, the fertility is out there, but it's an inorganic form. So it's not something that standard soil samples are really looking for. By the time I go through the growing system, everything breaks down. I have access to it. Even with the export of that nutrient, I'm having more measurable nutrient after out there after that system. So the trouble is some other people that have done this, that's where it gets real scary. They do see the same thing. You know, they do the cover crop, then pull soil sample potatoes. Then all of a sudden you see an increase in fertility. All of a sudden they think, oh, I'm magically making fertility. That is impossible. The only way I can add fertility in my system, nitrogen, through legumes, that is one way of pulling nitrogen from the atmosphere and adding it directly to the soil. Every other input has to come from an outside source. So that's where the compost, the fish, they're very complex with nutrient. You know, that's where more nitrogen, we have phosphorus, potassium, all these other macro, micros. There is no other way to gain from this. And I think even with the phosphorus, some guys have kind of gotten fooled into some traps too, right? We do some of these cover crops. You have some different things going on out there. They mobilize some of the phosphorus that's been tied up in our soils. They go out there, they see this new level of phosphorus. I just made phosphorus. That is not true. You changed the form the phosphorus is in, so now it looks better on paper. The soil sample looks better, but you didn't make that. It's been there the whole time, but the trouble is in a dysfunctional soil, we don't always have access to that fertility. So you have to be really careful and you can fall into some of these mind traps. Then you start thinking, oh, I, I can, I'm an alchemist. I just made fertility. Then you do that for a few years. Then you start seeing a crash of the system. So for me, as I brought more biological system into place, I have been able to greatly reduce my fertility inputs. When I started off with compost, I was putting three tons of compost on every acre every single year. We got away from barley. I was able to cut that in half because I had one less crop where I was exporting nutrient. So we went to three ton every other year. Then I started really improving the carbon in my soil, the biological activity. We were pulling our cell samples. We were getting nervous about having too much fertility in our soil and struggling with skin set on potatoes. I backed down to two ton per acre. That was almost too much. I backed down to a ton and a half per acre. On three of my fields, I'm down to a ton and a half of, eight, uh, of compost per acre every other year. My one field was a little bit sandier. That was a little too low. I've bumped it back up to two ton. So I'm two ton on one field, ton and a half on the others. And so when you look at it, I think I'm finally reaching an equilibrium. And I, I've always wanted to do this, but I've never done the numbers on that. So we look at the amount of potatoes we harvest, you know, so if, say you have a 500 sack yield, but 90% of that is water. If you look at just the dry mass of that potato crop and look at the nutrient content of that, I think most guys, if you look at the nutrient content of what you're exporting versus what they're putting on in fertility, it doesn't add up. You should have such an excess, but it shows you how inefficient synthetic fertilizers are. These soils are so dysfunctional. These guys are putting on so much more fertility than they actually require to get the tonnage they're growing because they're losing it. Volatilization, leaching, all these other, it's a le very leaky system. When you compare what 
if you looked at the nutrient analysis of what I'm applying for fertility, I'm extremely close to getting one-to-one ratio now for what I'm exporting. So does that, that help you out? <laughs> you betcha. Yeah. I, I'm just going to say one more, this one little thing, this a lot of sure. people forget how, how nutrient cycles. Yes, that's, that's, I, I agree. Thanks so much. Yeah. I can add to that, Karen. Um, so the situation that I'm in and the situation that Brendan is a little different, he's harvesting crops, right? He's harvesting potatoes and taking that nutrients off the land. I was blown away when I heard Dr. Christine Jones speak uh, probably eight, nine years ago. Uh, she talked about the, the elemental makeup of the plants. It's amazing how much percentage... Uh, I'm not going to get the numbers perfect in my head here, but um, the majority of it is carbon and oxygen. I think it's like 41% each. There's 6% um, uh, hydrogen and 1.5% nitrogen. It added up to 97.5% of every plant actually comes from the air, right? I'd never heard that before. So 97.5% every time when you grow a plant, it it's those, those four elements that all come from the air. That's what makes up the plant. There's a 2.5% that we need to get from somewhere else. Now, if you're grazing that, right? Like Brandon, every second year, you're grazing that with animals. You're recycling 80% of that. So every time that crop grows, you're getting new inputs, 97.5% of it. When you graze it, 80% comes out the back end of the animal and you're putting that back onto the soil. So... I believe that on the year that Brendan is grazing his cover crop, he's actually adding to his system. Whereas on the year where he's harvesting potatoes, he's taking away. We're at, you're definitely adding in your fish, your fish meals and things like that. But I mean, in my situation, you know, two to three times a year, I'm adding in that 97.5%. I'm gaining every year over and over. And if I do two, you know, two grazings a year, or sometimes three grazings, that's how I'm building up my soil from, you know, 3% to 8%. One of the other studies that we did on my land, the University of Alberta came out. We took a piece of land that was the comparable land was 5.2% soil organic matter. And we've taken it up to 11%, right? Because of the, the different system, we're recycling all that. And, and like Karen said, everything has a cycle there. We're, we're, what's the, the, the law of physics? Matter cannot be created or destroyed, Right. Yep. Everything has a cycle. So if the, the phosphorus, the carbon, the everything has a cycle, if if it's in the wrong part of the cycle. Right. And we, we never lack anything because you can't make it. You can't destroy it. It just changes forms, like Brendan said. So in a grazing situation, we're actually continually adding to our system in a cropping situation. We are exporting. So, yes, we do have to figure out how to bring that in in a cropping situation. So any uh Comments on that, Brendan? Well, in, but that's where I guess my viewpoint's a little different on that. Um, with the grazing every other year, in the inputs that you're bringing, if they're not the result of the photosynthesis, so like phosphorus and potassium, two very important nutrients to potatoes, those are things that we're not going to bring in through photosynthesis. So when you know you talk about phosphorus and stuff being uh, something the potatoes need, so one of the arguments I have all the time when people see the cattle or the sheep out there grazing. There's obviously some pies out there. They think, oh, it's great that you're adding that fertility 
to the soil. And I disagree with them a little bit because when you're looking at those nutrients, those minerals, there's nothing in that manure that didn't come from the cow. There's nothing in the cow that didn't come from the plant. There's nothing in that plant that didn't come from the soil. So all we're doing is we're cycling those nutrients out there, but we are changing the form that those nutrients are in. So we're, I'm, I don't feel like by having the cattle out there as a part of this closed system, I'm not importing nutrient that's in that in that manure. Now, if we were bringing in bales of hay and feeding it to the cattle on that land, totally different system. Now I have an input coming in. So all I'm doing is cycling the nutrients out there, introducing some biological activity and making sure that the majority of that's available to my potato crop the next year. So it just a little... I, I see where you're coming from, but I, I, I feel like I've got a little different perspective on that. So I still have to have those outside fertility sources coming back into the system to offset what I'm exporting with harvest. Right. Yeah, for sure. If you're exporting nutrients, you're going to have to bring it in somehow, somewhere, you bet. Linda, do you want to ask your next question? Yeah, sorry to have so many. Um, I always... I always just do infiltration tests here because I never know what soil tests really mean and what's worth the money. What's your advice, both you and you know, both Brendan and, and Steve? Um, I hear Haney tests. I hear PLFA. What do you think? Yeah, I can I can touch that. I, I don't do a lot of soil tests over the years. I, I usually worry about uh you know, what I'm, what I'm managing, what I can control. Now I'm lucky because the gateway research organization comes out and does studies once in a while and does tests or the university of Alberta comes out and does tests. Um, so that's usually where I'm getting mine from. Um, most of those tests uh, in the university of Alberta obviously has their own facilities to do that. Um, Grow, I think Stacy, you could probably correct me, but we use the CARA lab, which is a form of the Haney test. And ANL labs as well. ANL labs. But, yeah. Yeah. So to me, it, it doesn't really matter who's doing the test. Um, I like uh, listening to uh, Joe Williams. Uh, he talks about the soil test that that they send you anyway. Most of them just talk about available nutrients and not really the actual nutrients. You know, everything that we actually have out there is a lot more. It's just not available because we don't have the biology to get it. Right. And like Brendan Rocky said there, like there's a whole bunch that's unavailable. But once you uh, open up the biology there, boy, it's amazing what becomes available. Okay, so here's my philosophy on soil samples. I pull two soil samples each year. I do a standard soil sample and I do pull a Haney soil sample. To me, soil samples are not a management tool for me in the short term. So what I mean by that is I pull my soil samples in the spring, but never have I made a decision on anything that season based off of that year's soil sample. The very first year that I pulled a Haney soil sample, do you know what value it had? None whatsoever, because it was one point on a long line. Now I have over 10 years of Haney data, and what it is telling me is it's showing me what direction my soil is headed over a long period of time. So within that, it has valuable information to me. If I ever get to the point where certain numbers start to decline, I have to really question some of my management practices. So long-term management tool, I feel like they have value there. I definitely don't use it like most guys do in the short run. And so for me too, when I'm pulling a soil sample before my potato crop, 
or before the cover crop and then with the potato rotation, I'm using that soil sample to kind of determine how much compost I want to put on the following year because I'm looking at the long term and I'm looking at these values over time. If I ever start to dip down, that's when I bring up that compost level. But that's, you know, the fall, the year before the potatoes. So I have to stretch thing, everything out and I use it a lot more on a longer term scale, looking at the, the big picture and how to manage it as a whole, not these knee jerk reactions. You know, I'm not looking at a number right now, which was one spot in one field and trying to decide, oh, I need to put X amount of synthetic fertilizer on to offset that. Once you get into that very reactive system, I think you're obviously already dealing with a dysfunctional system if you have to be that quick to react because the system is so dysfunctional that it can't withstand some of that. So it's to me, you have to be more proactive and looking at it for the long run. And that's where with my system, I, I feel like I've reduced most of my expenses and I'm still spending money to grow a crop. But if, if you're putting money towards an expense, you're going to have trouble. Every dollar I spend on my soil now is an investment in my soil. And it's a real subtle thing, but it's really not. It's a different mindset. If you're investing in your soil, you're looking at the long-term return. And the guys I really feel bad for is like a potato guy and he's renting land from someone else. That has, has to be one of the toughest situations out there because it's really hard to talk to these guys into investing in soil health when you're renting that crop one season and you don't get the benefits. Because a lot of the things I'm doing right now isn't for this year's crop. It's for a crop five years from now. And so that's got to be really tough. And that's, I think, one of the toughest situations where that's going to be one of the hardest places for us to see huge improvements in soil health when you have a landlord and he's just jumping all over and you can't get everybody on board and, and, and you're not investing in the long-term health of the soil. So does that mean you feel sorry for me, Brendan? I lease all my land. I build it up. Oh, you're, I you're a rancher, it. though. You're a rancher. You don't count, man. That's that's a different ballgame. <laughs> but I build it up. I just I just lost yeah. a, piece of, a piece of land that I had for 18 years. I built it up to have like 12 inches of black topsoil on it, and now it's gone. Yeah, so yeah. Ah, it's part of the game. Somebody else is, and somebody else is getting the benefit from it. I, I know. That is a tough one. I've had a lot of green farmers follow me around and uh, buy out land from underneath me. So I've, I've had that happen probably nine times. I just Take it as a compliment, but compliments don't pay the bills, do they? <laughs> That's right. And soil improvement is, is more like a process rather than a, a point in time. You know, mm-hmm. uh, what we like to do is we like to have benchmark samples. So we're quite focused on a certain area as representative of the field so that we can see a change in an improvement in time. We like to try and get some estimation as well of the uh, soil health through the microbes, whether it's fungi or or actinomyces or gram positives or whatever. It's it's good to at least have some estimation of that. The Haney is good. The Carroll Soil Health Lab actually uh, counts uh, the bugs for us, and that's a wonderful thing. But a quick, dirty, and easy one is one that the Vitalis program is through ANL labs where they do an estimate based on uh, metabolites of, of various uh, soil microbes and they uh, they give us the best estimate and you can see an improvement over time. You've seen that with uh, some work we're doing out uh, towards Naples uh, in uh, Barhead Westlock area where we can see that the soil has been improving over time by putting uh, alfalfa back into an annual cropping field, that sort of a thing. So we like to see at least I do anyway, I prefer to see a, a representative sample of a, of a certain area that we can check over time to see how, how the soil health is improving. 
and the soil uh, availability is improving with or without the addition of uh, compost or other materials that we like to put in. So hopefully that gives you lots of answers there, Linda. Just for the benefit of Brendan and for the uh, podcast, that was Jay Byer, our interim manager of uh, Grow. So yeah, and he's our he's awesome. our soil guy, so he's the one who gets all the tests done. Um, iPad, whoever is on iPad, you had a question for Brendan about uh, benefit he's getting. So if you'd like to unmute yourself, do you see any benefits from the roots and the uh, vine that you're incorporating back in for potatoes? Because you've got a pretty good vine system that you're plowing back in, correct? So the 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 root system of the potato itself, yes, or from the cover. It and the vine. Do you see? You think that's giving you any nutrient value next year? Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, I'm not harvesting that vine, so that nutrient's still there, so it's going to get digested and broken back down. So I don't feel like I ever lose that nutrient that was incorporated into the plant itself. Just the tubers that are being exported. Yeah, I, didn't, I, I know potato has a pretty good vine system to it, so that was a question. Uh, Steve, one thought about the. Uh, Plants getting all their nutrients from the air. So cows, cow farts are good because you're adding stuff back to the air. Is that right? Methane? It's all part of a cycle, Larry. You know it. If, we, uh, if we're adding carbon to the ground, we can release some at the same time. It's, it's it's, cycle. You've got to have it in the air, too. But, yeah, yeah when you say you're putting a ton and a half of compost to an acre, that's not much compost at all. I mean, that's... It's really that's, not. That's amazing you're getting benefits from that. But I, I like what you're doing by reducing it when you don't need it. Yeah. And so, I mean, when you look at the economics of it too, I tell people all the time, I farm really cheap, but it's not like I'm sacrificing in order to do that. You know, I'm not sacrificing yield. I'm not sacrificing quality. It's just because the reason I spend so little on inputs is because that's all my system requires. So if that's all it requires, why, why waste the money? You know, I'm not being cheap just to be cheap, but just I'm being efficient and kind of following what the system is telling me and responding to that and putting out there what it needs to maintain where I am. Yeah, your, your bottom line sometimes depends not on what you set it for, but how much you put into it to get to that point. Yeah, and I think so often, I think the trouble with guys, I, I've said this in, in presentations before, but farmers are really good at spending $10 to make an extra five. Yes. And, and that's very problematic. So if I spend $5, I want to make seven. You know, whereas the other guys are, are reverse on it and they're just so hung up on overall tonnage and yield. But what did that extra tonnage cost you? And I think at the end of the day, they reach this point where they reach the saturation point and you're starting to spend more money than you're returning on that. And, and why? Just for that extra tonnage, you're not making more money. It's all about profit, not income. The income doesn't do you much good if, if what you're spending is is overlapping that. It's really about profit at the end of the day. Yeah, close to time and labor and to worry about it. But we talked about a while ago about using compost compared to uh, synthetic fertilizer. Those guys waste half their synthetic fertilizer because their soil's not healthy enough to take the benefits of that NP and K. And that they don't understand that by not having healthy soil. They're not getting anything yeah, out of it. Yeah, when you look at the tonnage of potatoes being produced versus how much fertility they're putting out there, the, the math isn't adding up. We've, we've got some holes somewhere. That math does not add up. These guys should have so much fertility left in their soil at the end of it when you're looking at it like an algebraic equation, but that's not how the math is working out. Plus, they're, they're producing a product that's not nutrient-dense, but you think about that when you actually eat the product, it's half as good as what you're producing. You've got to realize that, too. 
Yeah, and there was one year I had somebody talk me into pulling some petty old samples one year. We were just curious and kind of seeing what's going on. And one thing, the one that really stood out to me was they had different charts on there and we were looking at calcium and, you know, it had low, medium and high. My calcium was off the charts as far as high calcium. And when you want to look at the health of a potato itself, the number one way to have a potato that stores extremely well is having high calcium because you have stronger cell walls. So you have less pressure bruising, you have less bruising, all these other issues that happen in a potato storage. So the trouble wasn't, I, it's not, and I don't have higher calcium in my potatoes now because I started putting calcium on the field. It's just I have plenty of calcium in my soil. But originally, the potatoes did not have access to that calcium. Through biological activity in these cover crops, I'm now changing the availability of that calcium to the potatoes. Now it's uptaking a higher level of calcium. And now I'm ending up with a healthier potato crop at the end of the day. That's true. You just made it available. Thank you very much. Do you have add, thoughts? Yeah, I'll add a little bit to that, Larry. You talked about, or your, your first question was about uh, the potato vines. I'm in a different scenario. I'm grazing everything. But the residue that we leave, um, a lot of that on top of the surface ends up recycling back into the atmosphere, right? It's, um, I guess my argument for, for quite a few years now has been that academia has been teaching that it takes 100 years to grow an inch of topsoil, right? Because they're relying on that residue left on top. That's important, that residue up there. But a lot of it just recycles kind of above ground. The, the way I want to try and build soil and, and grab that carbon is through the exudate, right? That's the faster way or the better way to get carbon into the soil. So getting those plants growing actively, you know, collecting sunlight, pushing exudate into the ground, that's how I'm growing my soil. That's how I'm getting, you know, really good carbon levels, you know, down 12 inches into the soil. It's not necessarily leaving it on top and letting it decompose because that's a really, really slow way to grow soil. That's why academia thinks it takes a hundred years. So I've proven that we can do it a lot faster. Well, back to Christine Jones again, you, meant, you mentioned her earlier. And one thing she said once that really emphasized that to me is the only way to improve carbon in the soil is with plant-associated bacteria and fungi, meaning that residue that's on top, when it's being digested, you go through respiration, that carbon's being returned to the atmosphere. The only way to improve stable carbon in the soil is through those root exudates and the bacteria and the fungi feeding off of that carbon in the soil. So you have to have that relationship between the living root and the bacteria and fungi that have an association with that. So that's the biggest difference between the, the root exudates like you're talking about and the plant residue. And she's got a great website, amazingcarbon.com. There's a couple of papers on there that I really enjoy. Uh, nitrogen, the double-edged sword, and uh, the liquid carbon pathway, both really good reads. I, I, I try to read those once a year. They just kind of get me recentered again. It's like, yep, reestablish some foundations and make sure your head's screwed on straight. They're, they're fantastic papers. Yeah, I, I love her too. She, uh, I got to drive her around for a weekend and, and between trips and stuff, and she's just amazing. So I'm yep. really trying to get her on here one night, but uh, Australia has oh, a totally different, different time zone than us. Yeah. <laughs> yep. No, that'd be Nathan, great. You had another question. Uh, I was just asking, uh, Brennan, do you think you could, you could get by without antifungal sprays and insecticide sprays and all that if you were in a more moderate rainfall environment, lower elevation? So like uh, Minnesota or Iowa or the Canadian equivalent? Um, with the insecticide? Well, so it gets, that gets a little tricky, right? So when I do talk when I talk to potato growers from two different areas, they always ask me about Colorado potato beetle in late blight. I don't have either of those. 
So whether or not you could successfully manage Colorado potato beetle with these practices, I think it would help manage it, but whether or not it could 100%, I really don't know because that's something I don't have personal experience with. Late blight is another one. Late blight is a very devastating disease and with the right conditions, I don't know if you could ever get your plant and soil healthy enough to be completely safe from that disease. So in certain areas, I, I do think most of these people overuse these tools like fungicides, which does lead to devastation of soil health and stuff. But at the same time, you have to be realistic and, and you can't let your pride get in the way. And if you have a scenario where you need to use one of those tools, I say use that tool and you need to protect yourself because at the end of the day, we all, you need to make a living still. But like I said, I don't have that personal experience. I've tried working with some different groups. Like in Maine, we were trying to look at that as far as controlling uh, Colorado potato beetle and stuff. And we just never really were able to give get anybody to do give it a real honest try. Um, one thing it really frustrates me when I talk to other growers from other areas, I talk about this complete system, right? And what I'm doing is working, but that's because I have the complete system to support it. So the trouble is a lot of people hear what I'm talking about and they want to implement 20% of what I'm doing, but they want to see 100% of the results. That's not going to happen. And I've really struggled finding other people elsewhere that are willing to fully dive into this and 100% commit to this system. And until we start seeing some people honestly trying this, I won't have really good answers for you on a couple of those, some of that pest pressure and disease pressure in these other areas. I don't really know. Thank you. Yep. The issue there too, Brendan, is that you're in a different environment, right? When I Exactly. When I heard you speak or when I hear Gabe Brown speak or anybody else speak, um, I focus on taking the idea, right? And then you have to adapt that to your environment. So we have different pests. We have different problems. We have different diseases. Okay, how do I take that? Oh, I want to be a biotic farmer. Okay, now I have this pest. How do I find a way to, to you know, adapt or change it or uh, balance my system to deal with that symptom? Right. It's a different symptom than yours, but by using your thought process, your mindset, right? That's a huge thing in regenerative agriculture. The whole thing, it's a mindset shift. And that's what we need to work on is how do I take that idea, that concept, and adapt it to my environment? And that's what people right. miss. They want the recipe, right? I want the recipe. Just tell me how to do it. Well, and that's where application plays a really vital role here. So my number one pest I'm dealing with are aphid. I've got a huge advantage here because the aphid are migratory. So they come into the growing season a little bit later. That gives me the opportunity to establish these flowering plants, establish my beneficial insects before the aphid ever show up. Now, the trouble is if you're in an area with Colorado potato beetle, they pupate in the soil and emerge from the soil and they get a lot earlier jump on you and they can be devastating much earlier in the crop. The other thing is I've talked to people dealing with Colorado potato beetle and they want to dismiss everything I'm talking about because they say, well, there aren't any beneficials that are known predators of adult Colorado potato beetle. And that's true. I haven't been able to find any on any list that is true of that. But there are so many different predators and parasitoids that will attack the eggs and the larvae of the Colorado potato beetle. So this, the fundamentals, once again, plant diversity, insect diversity, I think they can be implemented in a way to help manage that problem, but they're going to have to apply it a lot different because they have to be more proactive and have to have some different defenses in place much earlier 
to take care of those those emerging uh, insects from the soil. So it's a completely different environment, completely different insect. I absolutely believe that they would see benefit from plant diversity and insect diversity. Is it enough on its own to completely manage that pest? I don't really know. And a lot of it when it comes to pest and disease pressure, my goal is never really eradication. It's always control. Even when I'm managing aphid in my field successfully, it doesn't mean my fields are free of aphid. It means I'm managing my aphid to where the populations don't get out of hand. And, and that's a big difference in mindsets as well. Every critter on my ranch has the right to reproduce. I don't want to eliminate any of them, right? I need yep. them all. But if one's getting out of hand, then we've got to balance the system. So, yep, I agree. Well, and I think we have to kind of remember why pests exist in a natural system. Like, remove ourselves from these systems for a minute. Why do these pests exist? Their job is to remove weak DNA from the gene pool. So when we select these varieties that have characteristics we like, sometimes it's 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 not necessarily genetic superiorly, genetically superior for other reasons in, in a natural system without us there. So we're creating an environment that's ideal for a lot of these pests to overtake us. Larry, do you want to jump in here? I'm just to tag on what Steve said. I appreciate Brendan because it, you listen, different people, Gabe Brown, I've listened to all Gabe's stuff, but I never thought after last year and this year, listening to Brendan, that a potato farmer would make me a better grass farmer. So I'm serious. There's things that you take out of this that I can more grow, grow, grow more grass to grow better cows. So thanks, Brendan and Steve both. Cool. Thank you. We are nearing 730. So I'm going to start to wrap up a little bit of the recording part here tonight. The conversation has been great. I hope it continues. But as is the tradition, I guess, at the wrap-up of the formal part of the evening, I'd like to ask Steve and then Brendan, final thoughts, any encouraging words for those on the call or who listen to the podcast later? I will turn it over to you in a second. Thanks for joining us, everybody. I'm going to turn the recording off when they're done. You're welcome to turn on your mics and keep the conversation going. In fact, I hope you do for a while. And we'll see you all again in two weeks when Dallas Mount is going to be our next guest. So, Steve, Brendan. Awesome. Thank you, Stacey. Uh, thanks to Grow for, uh, you know, sponsoring this event for four years now. That's uh, awesome for the Gateway Research Organization to help us out. Um, yeah, final thoughts. Uh, carbon is, is the number one thing that I manage on my ranch. Right. I'm bringing in carbon through bale grazing. I'm, you know, trying to leave carbon on my soil surface to uh, increase my water holding capacity. I'm trying to increase the carbon uh, in my soil through root exudates. Right. Carbon is the, the, you know, probably the only nutrient I really manage because then it gets my uh, H2O, two different elements that I'm trying to get in. It gets me my nitrogen. And it's just, it's the main one that we can bring in. Um, so it's a high priority on my ranch is to be managing that, that uh, carbon. And as uh, Brendan says all the time, we're, we're balancing the system, right? We've got all this whole complex system and most of agriculture just tries to manipulate parts of it, right? And we, we need to balance that whole system and, and try and almost step out of the way let nature do what nature needs to do and just come in and tweak it where we can. Um, so that's a, a totally different mindset than, uh, you know, modern agriculture. So um, that would be my advice to people is, you know, get out of the way of that, the, uh, the paradigm that, that uh, modern agriculture has, has put us all in. So jump out of that and, and uh, open up your mind and, and look at things a little different. So 
Brendan, thank you so much for jumping on here. I really appreciate it. Uh, been been uh, listening to you for quite a few years now, and I just love when, when you come up here. Uh, Brendan's going to be in Manitoba next week. Um, yep. Anybody out that way, by all means, jump on there. Uh, it, he's got a great presentation that you you, you don't want to miss. So thanks, Brendan. God bless. Yeah, thank you. Well, I, I appreciate this group. Uh, this was good for me. I haven't spoken since last. You know, we always have our circuit in the growing season. I, I don't give any talks to the present or any presentations or anything. So this was good. It kind of got the juices flowing again, got me all fired up again. Um, I've been getting a little discouraged going to these conferences and speaking. I feel like my success rate is extremely low. I feel like for about every thousand people I talk to, one actually makes a positive change. And what I'm learning more is just mindset is such a big part of this. If you're convinced it's not going to work, you're right. And you can just tell by looking out in the audience who doesn't believe you. I can be in the conjure room of 200 potato farmers, and you know the ones that just have written you off already. But every time, I always there's always one in the, in the audience that you, you seek out, and he's got the right mindset and his heart's in the right place. And those are the people I'm looking for. And I, I think this is you got a lot of people in this group that – have those characteristics, Steve, you're definitely one of those guys. You, I know you said some very nice things about me and I, I, I return the favor all the time. I tell people about Steve Canyon all the time. I, I feel like you're, like I said, listening to you give your presentation there in Montana. I was like, well, where's this guy been my whole life? You got me fired up. I, it, it's rare for me to get inspired by somebody talking and you got me going that day. So that was fantastic. So appreciate this group. Um, really appreciate the questions. I hope, I hope, hope we did some good tonight. I, I, I'm always available. If anybody has further questions, if I can do something to help somebody out, there's ways to track me down. It's not that hard. We're all on the same team at the end of the day. You, you get a group of people that are like-minded. I think we need to help each other out. and We can all collectively move in the same direction. Agriculture isn't competitive, in my opinion. We're all trying to accomplish the same goal. Improving the soil health on my farm is good for me, but if I can get my neighbors to improve their soil health, that is also good for me. And trying to get more of a community approach is something we need to focus a little bit more on. And, you know, I, I like having the grazing component going again, bringing two different communities together, the farmer and the rancher, a lot of benefits coming from that. So just trying to get people working together and moving in the same direction. So appreciate the invite. And I don't know, maybe, maybe I can get on here again. This is my second time on here. I, I think one more time I get a free sandwich or something, don't I? Sounds good. Everybody can turn on their mics and their cameras and keep the conversation going. 